Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I just find this mind-boggling, but I wanted to talk about Stacey Abrams and what she said and what David Perdue said down in Georgia. And so I Googled it, right? You know, David Perdue, go back home or go where you came from or Stacey. You know, I, I plugged in a couple of different things. And the top 10 or 20 stories that came up all quoted David Perdue, and none of them quoted Stacey Abrams. I mean, I had to really dig to find an article that actually had the Stacey Abrams quotes in it, which tells me that either there's a huge media bias in favor of Perdue and against Abrams, or there's all these right-wing brand-new phony news sites that are just flooding the Internet. But anyhow, here's, here's what she said. Right. She said, this was on Saturday, she said, I am tired of hearing about how we're the best state in the country to do business when we're the worst state in the country to live in. When you're number eight, 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you are not the number one place to live. So David Perdue's response to this was, hey, she ain't from here. Let her go back to where she came from if she don't like it here. Now, the news is treating this charitably, like they want her to go back to what? Uh, I, I believe she was born in Alabama, lived for a while in, in Minnesota. I, I don't have the list in front of me, I'm sorry. But she, but she ended up in, in uh, Georgia by the time she was a teenager. In fact, she was a valedictorian of, of her high school class in, in Georgia. So she's a Georgian. I mean, you know, you, you would... She, she was in the Georgia legislature for a decade. So that's the charitable response. The uncharitable response is this is another white politician telling a black person to go back where they came from. And we know what the rest of the white racists in the South think David Perdue meant when he said that. Secondly, a couple of years ago, she had told a crowd when she was running for governor, when she was running against uh, uh, Brian Kemp, she said, I want to create a lot of different jobs. She talked about how, uh, well, here, here it is. She says, I want to create a lot of different jobs because people shouldn't have to go into agriculture or hospitality in Georgia to make a living in Georgia. Why not create renewable energy jobs? Because I'm going to tell you all a secret. Climate change is real. So that's what she said. And so Dave, David Perdue comes out and says, when she told black farmers, you don't need to be on the farm, and she told black workers in hospitality and all this, you don't need to be, she is demeaning her own race. 
What? It looks to me like what David Perdue did in Georgia, and he's running behind Brian Kemp badly, is he just decided, okay, I'm going to go full racist. We'll see if we can, you know, scoop up another 10 or 20,000 racist votes. Sarah in uh, Abington, Virginia. Hey, Sarah, what's up? Hey there, Tom. Thanks for everything you do. I originally called to talk about Purdue's slur about Stacey Abrams, that she should go back where she came from. You know, I'm only part Native American, and that Purdue statement should be returned back to him with something like this. Uh, You know, well, since you're not red, why don't you set the example by going back to where you came from first, Mr. Cracker? Yeah. You know, I just wanted to say (laughs) that. And also on the subject of global warming. And, you know, years ago I saw a bumper sticker that said this. He who dies with the most toys wins. I think that's the oligarch's religion. I think that's their end game. You know, they don't even care if their own offspring survive. They just want so much for themselves. It's it's just gotten to that point. Anyway, that's all I had to say. Besides, thanks for everything you do. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I remember those bumper stickers. That was back in the 80s or the 70s. You know, it was, I think it was the 80s. Yeah, the Reagan 80s. It was everybody wanted to get the most toys. Sarah, thank you. Spot on. Uh, Maurice in Berlin, Germany. Hey, Maurice, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? I'd like to comment uh, about the Stacey Abrams, or not Stacey Abrams, but uh, Nancy Pelosi. Okay. Go for it. She's being uh, denied communion, I believe, by the Catholic Church. Uh, One Catholic bishop in San Francisco said he wouldn't give her communion, and then that was last uh, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, I forget which day. And then on Sunday, she went to her normal Catholic church in Washington, D.C., and the pastor there gave her, or the priest there gave her communion. So, you know, this is just, this guy, this is just one guy who's trying to get himself in the media. He's, he's, he's an ass. He's, you know, it's just like, so I I think it's kind of a non-story, frankly, that, that the media thought, you know, they would turn it into a, into a story, but. Yeah. Well, I I would like to raise a few hackles on the back of people's necks when I say more people have been killed in the name of religion than all the wars that we have fought in. I agree. I agree. Religion has been one of the major poles around which we organize tribe, essentially. And, uh, you know, whether it's like, you know, the Catholics versus the Protestants in Ireland or or whatever. I mean, you know, there's just there's no no shortage of of religious wars. You're absolutely right. Maurice, thank you very much for that. Earl in Hyde Park, Illinois. Hey, Earl, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? The way I look at it is maybe a little bit differently than you. I, you know, I'll go with the old adage, if it leads, it bleeds. So when people in the news office decide what articles to run, Purdue is kind of like a bleeder. You know, it catches mm. people's attention. It's kind of out there. Yeah. And it grabs them right away. It's a hook. You know what I'm saying? So Stacey Abrams, she's putting it out there. And you have to think about it. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be laid back and so on and so forth. So it doesn't stay just... Messaging doesn't hit you over the head, but you sit up and take notice when Purdue says something that either you are for it or you're against it. And so what I'm kind of saying there, we don't know how to grab attention in our messaging that the right-wing media does. And so, like you said, you have waking my eyes to MSNBC with all of the right-wing former Republican members yeah. who are doing the commentary over there. They still are right wing, but they're not as far as the Trumpites are. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what I want to thank you for. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Earl, for your call and your kind comments. Marcus in Chicago. Hey, Marcus, what's on your mind today? 
Hey, Tom, how you doing? I want to get back to this racism thing. Sure. I get on some of these social media sites, and you see some of the things the racist posts. And a guy told me one time that he, he didn't like black people. So I asked him two questions. I, I asked him, then it was a statement I made. I asked him, why was he a racist? Crickets. Couldn't answer that question. Along with that, I asked him, what black person has ever caused you harm? Couldn't answer that question. Uh -huh. Then I told him, no black person has done anything to you, but you hate me. Tell me why. And they can't do it. Never can do it. Yeah. Or their fears and hates are so deep and primal that they can't even explain it. You know, it's, I get it and I don't get it. I mean, you can't explain something you don't have a reason for. Tom. Well, I'm, I, I'm thinking of, you know, my entire life. Uh, yeah, I've been on this planet, you know, longer than most. And, uh, you know, up until the last decade or so, the only time you saw black people being characterized in the media was as villains or buffoons, and more often as villains. And that creates this kind of fear of the, for people who don't, have regular interactions with black people, that creates a fear of the unknown, essentially. And I think that's why so much of this hatred seems to be really being churned by people in, you know, more or less in their 50s and older. Although there is, you know, they're, they're aggressively trying to raise a whole new generation of white races. You, you know, Tom, I, I could almost buy that, but we'll run this one by you. I think it's a generational thing. It's taught at home. Yeah. You know, hating black people did not just become popular. You know, they've been doing it since they brought us here. Yep. And the biggest thing about their hate for us is their fear. They fear smart, black, educated people. Yep. That's why it was against the law for black people to uh, go to school at this country. I'm learning to read and write one time in this yep. country. That's the reason HBCUs were formed because they didn't want us educated. Yep. It's fear and it's gener generational racism. Yeah, I, I, I recall the first time I read uh, Patrick Henry's speech in, uh, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, it, it shocked me. It was when I was writing the book on guns and the Second Amendment. And he, he was the largest slaveholder in Virginia. He had, he had about 600 enslaved people that he owned in Virginia. Um, the guy who said, give me liberty or give me death, the largest single slaveholder in the state, one of the, one of the three or four largest in the entire country. And, and he got up and he gave this speech. It was when they were debating the Second Amendment. And he said, uh, and, the second, and the original language said, uh, for the security of a free nation. And, and they were talking about state militias, you know, and, how, and Virginia's state militia was the slave patrol. And he got up and he said, you know, if the federal government... the police department. Exactly. He said, if the federal government seizes control of our militia, of our slave patrol, and uh, that could be the end of slavery in Virginia, and there are, there are more black people right now you know, where I live than there are white people, and what's going to happen to us, essentially, is what he said. I mean, I've, I've reprinted his speech in my book. Um, but, uh, you know, that, I, I, you know that, that fear that... You know, they might do to us what we did to them. I think was you know very real for Patrick Henry. Obviously, he was you know he had six hundred people enslaved. But I think it's very That's real for some line, white people today. The same mindset that they have today. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and exact same mindset. Yeah, and 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 we just have to be very clear that a, a pluralistic, yeah. multiracial society is not picking winners and losers. It's 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 um, it's about America winning. You know, just like you know, you heard and even today that black men will rape our women and our wives and daughters. What was happening during the times of slavery? White men were raping black women and black girls. Yeah, so there's a hell of a lot of projection going on here, Marcus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and, I, and that, I guess that was my point. Marcus, I need to move along, yeah. but thank you. Thank you for a thoughtful conversation. Yep, thank I you, appreciate Tom. it. Good talking yeah. with you. Randy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? The biggest problem is the white man in this country has never been in checks. And in my mind, as a black man, that's the number one problem as it stands today. Are you talking about the trucker you, situation, Rudy? All of it. It even goes back to Trump. You have to, people have to follow the law. Period. Be a good idea. And, until, and, and until, when, until everyone follows the law and get punished by the law equally, then you won't have a problem getting vaccinations. In other words, Tom, when someone's been at the top of the heat eating forever, then he don't know anything else. Yeah. So you're saying that so the that means- uh, white truckers up in Canada are so f- comfortable with the uh, immunity and impunity that their white privilege has given them that they're willing to do these uh, outrageous and stupid and illegal things. And had they been equally subject to the law as people of color, they might have uh, they might have not. Is that is that the argument you're making, Rudy? Yeah, I'm saying for the most part, a lot of these situations that's happening in this country right now. Yeah. Yeah. Until everyone is subjected to this law equally, then that's when things will move along a little smoothly. Yeah. Until that happens, Tom, we're going to be in this couple. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Thank you, Rudy. I appreciate the call. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Stacey Abrams being told to go back where she came from is something that most uh black people in the United States have heard uh, if they're past the age of 20 uh, many times. So why hasn't a single media outlet talked about that? I don't have the answer for you. Every story I want to say. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say every story I've seen, it talks about, well, you know, Alabama and all, you know, and it's like, wait a minute. I don't think so. But back to you. Well, the media is complicit in this stuff uh, to a large degree, but yeah. I but I wanted to, to give you a little different take on this. And again, uh, I don't, uh, as you know, I I'm a fairly prolific writer. I took a deep dive into this uh, about three years ago when Donald Trump was in office, and he had made similar comments. Uh, and anyone that's interested, that article is called "Black to Africa." Bargain Basement Deal for White America by Ron Kenyatta. It's at Op-Ed News. Uh, but I do, and I know you don't like people reading on the program, but I, very briefly, I just want to quote, and, and I think that it will sum up how I feel about this. When I, I, I had heard this during the Trump administration, there were, I had a white man say that to me. And I thought about it a whole lot. I'd heard it before in my life. I've heard it since. And I have a little different take, Tom. You know what? Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll go back, and you will pay for my return trip to the African continent. That includes my entire entire family, both nuclear and extended. You will also, predicated upon the former, provide armies of genealogists, anthropologists, and archaeologists to determine exactly where in Africa I came from. It's a big place, you know. 
there's no point in you hiring the linguist yet so that we might determine my native language that you forbade me to speak. Can't figure that out till we do the other thing. It's <laughs> a good one. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jose in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Jose, what's up? Well, you know, it's just another sad weekend that we experienced with the mass shooting. And and I just think that we all look back at the history of this country and we can know that the only thing that suffers the most is truth. That we cannot be honest with ourselves as a nation as to where we are and where we came from and what we did to get here. And I find that I think people have to be honest. And, and as I told many students, the toughest thing to do is to be honest. We suffer from that so badly right now that we want to blame people of color like myself uh, for all that goes wrong and for and replacing it with some theory that we're trying to replace white people. It's, it's all just a rationale of lies. And until we come to the truth that when someone's trying to sell you a bill, it's for a reason. Yeah. And it's the same as where it's all a hustle game. And we and it's real easy to believe the hustle because they made the, the way they lace it and make it sound that, yes, that's that's what it is. And you don't have to think about it anymore. And you're shed free of all the guilt and responsibility that you must that this country will will have to carry on its back at some time if it ever wants to truly be a progressive nation. Yeah, I, I, I am with you, to, uh, Jose. I mean, it, it, ask. Ask your average white person walking around in America, how long have your people been in this country? I, I can tell you, my grandfather and grandmother on my father's side came to this country in 1917. So, I mean, you know, who has who has the longer claim? My mother's family had been here longer, but but I, I think that's probably true of most white people. But if you ask black people, yes, they they can trace their ancestors way back. Well, many of them can't because of the horrors of slavery, but their ancestors came here much much earlier than that. Native people, Hispanic people, 
have been in the, in the North American continent for literally forever. I mean, you know, in terms of human, you know, 20, 30,000 years. And, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden you got Tucker Carlson, you know, the, 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 the Pillsbury Doughboy running around going, oh, yeah, they want to replace me or they want to replace us. Or, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's not even logical. Jose, thank you. Tom in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, I just wanted to say love your work. But on the Second Amendment, isn't militias supposed to be under the authority of civilian government? In what context? As in, as in they're supposed to be registered and can't do anything such as exercise their powers unless they're under, like, the governor's control or the civilian government. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, and, and, and regulated, by the way. It's why the word regulated is in the Second Amendment. In fact, the, it's the only place in the entire Constitution where the word regulated appears is in the Second Amendment. Ah, oh, well, there you go. Uh, we got all these, you know, it's funny because five years ago, white extremists were considered the num number one terrorist threat in America and were going to be listed as such. And then the Trump administration just took out that whole block of the Justice Department. The domestic terrorism people that were looking at white extremists. You can look it up. I will have to. Thank you for that, Tom. Interesting. Thank you very much. Eric in Milwaukee. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hello. Hi, Mr. Hartman. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'd like to kind of date or predate a little bit of your, you know, Hitler, Mein Kampf, even eugenics to remind everyone that, you know, ultimately white males in America are responsible for much of this. And we can go back to Mr. Woodrow Wilson, who hosted a showing, the premiere of Birth of a Nation in the White House. Yep. And Teddy Roosevelt, a hero of mine when I was a child, spoke of race suicide which is the predecessor to the replacement theory, in a sense, uh, on the regular. Yep. He spoke about it often as well. Then you've got Nixon, who took the civil rights law and built a big mistrust in government and created the Southern you know, strategy and law and order, et cetera, et cetera, essentially rolling the blame over to everybody but white males. Mr. Reagan, as you talked about, he often mentioned the welfare queens and all the things that he had done. And then we come to this, you know, and even Mr. Clinton, when he was president, between welfare reform, three strikes, truth and sentencing, he went over to the other side and, and enabled those things. And really, I want to bring it to right now, Mr. Biden and this horrible crime in Buffalo and what we're looking at. And you see a lot of people evading the fault of, of white men in general. And I really hope that he strikes a note, not only to be conciliatory to the black neighborhoods that, that are, you know, constantly under attack by white males throughout their entire life, but that he actually literally reaches out to white males and white men and white America in general and helps us humanize these folks and, and realize I think that who needs exactly the, like I, I think the group that needs to be reaching out to the white males who are associated with replacement theory is the FBI. And white males, <laughs> yeah. we need to reach out. We need I, to reach know, out I to our own because I'm, we're in I'm, everybody's family. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm, 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 I'm not real uh, high on empathy right now. Today from Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America by Martha S. Jones. In the introduction, Rights of Colored Men Debating Citizenship in Antebellum America is the title of the introduction. The title of William Yeats's 1838 treatise, Rights of Colored Men, aptly captures the subject of this book. The 19th century Americans for whom Yeats wrote were fascinated by a juridical puzzle. Not slaves, nor aliens, nor the equals of free white men, who were former slaves and their descendants before the law. 
None were more interested in this question than black Americans themselves, and Birthright Citizens takes up their point of view to tell the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States. The pressures brought on by so-called black laws and colonization schemes, especially a radical strain, explain why free people of color feared their forced removal from the United States. In response, they claimed an unassailable belonging, one grounded in birthright citizenship. No legal text expressly provided for such, but their ideas anticipated the terms of the 14th Amendment. Set in Baltimore, a place between North, South, and the Atlantic world, this book traces the scenes and the debates through which black Americans developed ideas about citizenship and claims to the rights that citizens enjoyed. Along the way, they engaged with legislators, judges, and laws, everyday administrators. From the local courthouse to the chambers of high courts, the rights of colored men came to define citizenship for the nation as a whole. Yates authored the very first legal treatise on the rights of free black Americans. It was 1838 when rights of colored men to suffrage, citizenship, and trial by jury was published in Philadelphia. He was not one of antebellum America's highly regarded legal minds. Some say he read law for a time, although there's no evidence that he was admitted to the bar. Instead, Yates's career began with a short-lived stint as a newspaper publisher in his hometown of Troy, New York. His bona fides on the subject of race and citizenship were best established during his years as an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. While many abolitionists maintained a self-conscious distance from free black communities, Yates centered his work there. The oppression of free people of color was a companion to slavery, in Yates's view, with anti-slavery work necessarily extending into questions of free people's status. Penning rights of colored men was the pinnacle of this mission. Yates placed a powerful instrument of authority in the hands of free African Americans and their allies. The antebellum legal treatise was a key tool in the standardization and dissemination of legal knowledge and was typically devoted to the comprehensive synthesis of a single branch of law. By the late 1830s, Yates was following on the success of James Kent's commentaries and Joseph Story's treatise series. The genre had come to be associated with the concepts of law as scientific knowledge, legal education as systemic, and the profession as respectable. Yates successfully adopted legal culture's own tool to such a degree that readers from the 19th century until today have regarded him as an authority on free black legal status. But Yates's text was also a work of advocacy. Rights of colored men received prominent notices in the black and abolitionist press and could be purchased at local anti-slavery society offices. As a result, the work served as a probing legal treatise that fueled activist arguments. Yates provides a window into the position that some activists, black and white, took on race and citizenship in the end of the 1830s. Law was an instrument of change, and Yates Fort rightly explained his objective to undermine prejudice against color. Racism had led to legal disability, exclusion from militia service, naturalization, suffrage, public schooling, ownership of real property, office holding, and courtroom testimony. Yates was especially unsettled by the disenfranchisement of free black men in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and more recently Pennsylvania. Assembling evidence from legal culture, he believed, would help establish the rights and citizenship of free black people. Yates began with a story of the nation's origin. The establishment of the United States, he said, had been at the outset a revolutionary, republican, and enlightened undertaking that was untainted by racism or distinctions among and between races. This had been possible in the wake of the American Revolution because the founding generation knew firsthand 
the contributions black people had made to independence through military service and through labor. American law had originally been colorblind, as evidenced by the absence of racial distinctions in founding documents such as the federal and state constitutions. Change came in the early 19th century at the fault line between generations. A forgetting occurred, Yates posited. Lawmakers of the early republic did not know how black people had contributed to the nation's founding and hence were entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens. In this sense, Yates's aim was partly to restore that past to the nation's political and legal memory. To achieve this, he compiled a history of lawmakers and their deliberations in which he found the development of anti-black prejudice in courts, constitutional conventions, and legislatures. He followed the professional lives of men whose work included roles from low-level administrator to convention delegate and judge. Their ideas about free black people moved with them. Most powerful was Yates's argument about how law, through suffering from amnesia, could be made right. The book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. Randy in Morgan City, Louisiana. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind? We come from the dream world y'all living in. Y'all talking about political violence, but yet the Democrats supported BLM, who burned down the country. You're talking about whitewashing history when they were the ones tearing down the statues. What, what are you talking about? Well, those statues are not history, Randy. They're they're memorials to slavery and the people who fought to to preserve it. There wasn't memorials. That's our history. That's that's what happened. And we just and you, you talk about tearing down the country, glorifying glorifying racists who were slave owners and were willing to go to war against the United States. Traitors against the United States, glorifying traitors against the United States is not something that patriots do, Randy. I'm, I'm just astonished to hear you defend that. No, it's not. It's why, not do you want to defend, why do you want to defend traitors? That's our history. That's, yes, that's we have history. traitors in our history. Why do you think that they should be lionized? Why should we be looking at statues of them? Why should why should you glorify BLM for burning down the country? I don't know of any statues to BLM, but you specifically are saying that the whole you know this whole thing is this terrible thing is taking down these statues of these racist traitors to the United States. They engage in treason, Randy. What about BLM burning down the country? BLM is not engaging in treason, and they haven't burned down the country. They did burn it down. No, they come down on. Randy, Randy, I, I, I want to, you know, nice try, but again, why are you defending traitors? They why? Not, they is, it, is it because you think that slavery was okay? That's history. That's our history. And you think, and do you agree with Tom Cotton that it was just a necessary evil? Every other country in the world has had slavery. So you do think it's a, just a necessary evil? Randy, that, 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 is, that is somewhere between pathetic and outrageous. I'm, I'm, I'm so sad to hear that from you. And, and I hope you can get your head screwed on straight. We'll be right back. Stick around. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Bryant in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Hey, Bryant, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I was an election commissioner in the state of Mississippi, Hmm. and I want to speak brief about that. But uh, the CRT is what I'm mainly concerned about. I've got a friend of mine that brought the bill up here in Mississippi to not have it in the state. And I just wonder if the conservatives really thought about what they were doing, because, I mean, I don't know if you know that Serge Tonkin with System of a Down has been trying to get the uh, Armenian Holocaust. Yeah. Well, it, uh, he he was trying to get it as, as labeled as a Holocaust, and they refused to do it. Turkey, Israel, and America said, no, no, no. Yep. You can call it whatever you want to, but you're not going to call it a Holocaust. That's, that's for yeah, it. I don't know about Israel's. And, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, and yeah. so that opens up a whole can of worms that they're not thinking about around here. And if, if, if your listeners will think about this a little deeply about what I just said, then there will be all sorts of kind of things come up. You, you talk about being a president, yes. Uh, but now on the elections, we have a problem here uh, in Mississippi. Uh, there's only two counties in Mississippi that have paper backup to the ballots. And uh, I am sure that the conservatives uh, don't mind there not being paper uh, back backups for the ballots. Right. All it takes is to hack the system and the votes get flipped and no one knows uh, plausible deniability. And I brought this up time and time again, and they will not even put me nowhere in public to say anything about this. They Which- know it. Everybody knows in the system that these ballots that don't have a paper backup, you can hack the system and you can flip the vote and no one will know you did it. No one will know it's done. And that's it. Now, in Mississippi, there won't be nobody here disagree with it because of the powers to be and who is in power. Well, this is how Don Siegelman lost, in, and I put that in quotes, lost the race in Alabama, and I think it was 2002. Um, was, you know, and, and by the way, it's not the voting machines that get hacked. What happens is the voting machines typically accurately tabulate the vote, but then that becomes a, a, a basically a spreadsheet. You know, it becomes data, you know, mathematical data. Those are then transferred to what are called tabulators, you know, one computer that takes the input from 30 or 40 different machines. And that's what happened in Alabama was in the middle of the night. Um, in a, in the very Republican district, where the Republican the guy who was running the Republican campaigns was also the guy who was running the tabulator at like one o'clock in the morning after after Don Siegelman was declared the victor, he suddenly discovered fifteen thousand new votes that somehow Absolutely. moved from from Don Siegelman to Bob Riley. And uh, I got a I got a call from the Secretary of State. I was sitting there with the uh, head of the Election Commission, and the Secretary of State uh, Delbert Hoseman told him said, look here, said, 
do not do what you just mentioned, Tom, over the Internet. And and the head of the election commission used to be a head over the whole Mississippi election commission. We got paper back up in DeSoto County and even in Rankin County. Now, you know what them two counties are. And I don't. I don't. What's unique about those two counties? But all over the other counties, this can happen. All of them. Are those are those two counties like principally white, and so they're protecting their vote, or is it is this is this not about race? You said it. Okay, and so he said, "What the hell are you calling me for?" He said, "We got uh, we got paper backups. They can't do nothing with us. What about the rest of the state?" And then that's when he said, "It's going to be the Russians do it." And I was like, "Russians? Good plausible deniability." Wow, amazing. Brian, thanks for the flag. Thanks for the, uh, for the heads up on that. That's, that's uh, mind-boggling. If you, if you get any, any detail on that or you have any backup for everything you just said, please tweet it to me. I'd love to see it. Uh, Brian, yeah, I, But anyway, uh, uh, the uh, CRT thing, y'all yeah. think real deep about what I said. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, you know, uh, you get into the censorship business, it can come back and bite you in the ass. Absolutely right. Brian, exactly. thank you very much. Chris in Fairbanks, Alaska. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on the CRT in 1619. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really breaks down to if it's a taxpayer-funded institution, we cannot ban these things. Like you said, it's a freedom of speech thing, and we have to allow it to be taught. Well, there's also, it's it's the actual history of the United States. Well, I would disagree with that, and calling this country irredeemably racist is absolutely Well, I'm not wrong. calling the country irredeemably racist, and neither do either of those those things. They point out that there's a, a substantial racist history here. Yeah, but uh, oh, that, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. But I think we've <laughs> come a long way, and I, I don't think either one of those philosophies recognize that. Oh, they do. They absolutely do, Chris. Yeah, you know, if you if well, you're, and, if you're and, buying and, this so notion, I'll just that, add this, and then I'll uh, first of all, CRT is not so even taught in our schools. Way, but but what's yeah. that? So I said first of all, CRT is not even taught in our schools. That's a law school issue. But the but we're just talking about Black history. Republicans are trying to ban black history because the party has become basically an ethno party. It's become it's become a political party that is based on race and religion and not much else. So what do you have to say about someone like Thomas Sowell or Shelby Steele? I don't know who those people are. Okay, well, I think we just need school choice for parents. Parents can decide what's best for their kids. I I disagree. I think everybody in America should know the actual history of America. But Chris, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, you know, if you don't know your history, it, I think it was Edmund Burke said, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Um, here we are. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do by Jennifer L. Eberhardt. PhD. This is from the introduction. She starts out by talking about how she's giving a talk to a group of police officers and chiefs of police about bias, and they're all sitting in stone face, cold, you know, kind of glaring at her. And she continues, eventually I stopped with the lessons and the data graphs and the images and the jokes and the movie clips, none of which were working. She was getting no response from the audience. And she says, I decided to veer off my usual script and share a personal story. 
I explained this some years ago. My son Everett and I were on a plane. He was five years old, wide-eyed, and trying to take it all in. He looked around and saw a black passenger. He said, hey, that guy looks like Daddy. I looked at the man, and truth be told, he did not look anything like Daddy, not in any way. I looked around for anyone else Everett might be referring to, but there was only one black man on the plane. I couldn't help but be struck by the irony, the race researcher having to explain to her own black child that not all black people look alike. But then I paused and thought about the fact that kids see the world differently from adults. Maybe Everett was seeing something that I missed. I decided to take another look. I checked the guy's height. No resemblance there. He was several inches shorter than my husband. I studied his face. There was nothing in his features that looked familiar. I looked at his skin color. No similarity there either. Then I took a look at his hair. This man had dreadlocks flowing down his back, and Everett's father is bald. I gathered my thoughts and turned to my son, prepared to lecture him in the way I might inform an unobservant student in my class. But before I could begin, he looked up at me and said, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. Maybe I didn't get that right. What did you say, I asked him, wishing I had not heard what I had heard. And he said it again, as innocently and as sweetly as you can imagine from a bright-eyed boy trying to understand the world. I hope he doesn't rob the plane. I was on the brink of being upset. Why would you say that, I asked as gently as I could. You know, Daddy wouldn't rob a plane. Yes, he said, I know. Well, why did you say that? This time my voice dropped an octave and turned sharp. Everett looked up at me with a really sad face and said very solemnly, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. Just telling that story reminded me of how much that moment hurt. I took a deep breath, and when I looked back out at the crowd in the auditorium, I saw that the expressions had softened. Their eyes had changed. They were no longer uniformed police officers, and I was no longer a university researcher. We were parents, unable to protect our children from a world that is often bewildering and frightening, a world that influences them so profoundly, so insidiously, and so unconsciously that they and we don't know why we think the way we do. With a heavy heart, I continued with my point. We are living with such severe racial stratification that even a five-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. Even with no malice, even with no hatred, the Black Crime Association made its way into the mind of my five-year-old son, into all of our children, into all of us. I finished the training and invited the audience to come up to ask questions or share their stories. I'd been warned that no one would, but one officer did stay behind in the emptying auditorium. As he approached the stage, I stepped down to meet him. Your story about your son on the plane reminded me of an experience I had on the street. It's something I haven't thought about in a long time, the officer said. I was out one day working undercover, the officer said, and I saw a guy at a distance who didn't look right. This guy looked similar to me, you know, black, same build, same height. But this guy had a scruffy beard, unkempt hair, ripped clothes, and he looked like he was up to no good. The guy began approaching me, and as he was getting closer, I had a feeling that he had a gun on him. Something's off with this guy, I thought. This dude ain't right. So the guy is coming down a hill near the front of a nice office building, one of those big office towers with glass walls, and as the guy's approaching, I couldn't shake the feeling that he was armed and dangerous. As I got closer to the building, I lost him for a second, and I began to feel panicked. Suddenly, I see the guy again, but this time he's inside the office building. I could see the guy clearly through the glass wall. He's walking inside the building in the same direction and at the same pace I was walking. Something was wrong. When I quickened my pace, I could see him quicken his pace. And finally, I decided to stop to abruptly turn and confront the guy. He stops too, and I look him face to face, the officer said to me. And when I looked in his eyes, a shock went through me. I realized that I was staring at myself. I was the person I feared. I was staring at my own reflection through the mirrored wall. 
That entire time, I was tailing myself. I was profiling myself. The stories kept coming. At every single session, someone came up and told me a story, stories that enriched my understanding not only of police-community relations, but also of our human predicament. This book is an examination of implicit bias, what it is, where it comes from, how it affects us, and how we can address it. Implicit bias is not a new way of calling someone a racist. In fact, you don't have to be a racist at all to be influenced by it. Implicit bias is a kind of distorting lens that's a product of both the architecture of our brain and the disparity in our society. We all have ideas about race, even the most open-minded among us. Those ideas have the power to bias our perception, our attention, our memory, and our actions, all despite our conscious awareness or deliberate intentions. Our ideas about race are shaped by the stereotypes to which we're exposed on a daily basis. And one of the strongest stereotypes in American society associates blacks with criminality. And she continues, the book is biased by Jennifer L. Everhart, and it's great. Martha in uh, Issaquah, Washington, listening to KBCS. Hey, Martha, what's up? Hi, I just had the same episode about uh, police uh, putting up uh, or claiming stop, stop signs uh, in the 30s. My uh, mother was driving and got a ticket for not stopping at a stop sign. Turned out the stop sign was non-existent. It was not there. My dad went down with her to take a picture of the setting, and a stop sign had been was being put up at that time huh. after the fact <laughs> and he they took it to they went to court had to go to court uh they told their story and uh bull bull connor was the uh infamous <laughs> uh guy in in birmingham at the time in birmingham alabama and uh he but banned my dad oh my dad was a, a uh, specialist, medical specialist, ENT. He banned his officers from uh, going to them ever as a patient. So he never saw another uniformed policeman in his waiting room. Wow. Ever. So, <laughs> and it hurt his business. Um, it really did. Yeah. Back in those days, it was not easy to make a living even. And, and in a profession, it was even just as hard as anything else. Sure. And so it was. Uh, it had a big effect on us back then. So back in the 30s, the 1930s, Bull Connor, as police yeah. chief of Birmingham, Alabama, was running a stop sign scam to extract yes. money from the citizens. And this is from white people, too. I mean, oh, this, yes. is, this, oh, this yes. wasn't about Ooh, race. This family. was about corrupt cops. And sure. your dad called him out on it, and Bull Connor got his revenge. Right, he did. He, it was a very That's monetary revenge, but he, it, it worked some. That's Not an amazing story. Totally. He probably had plainclothes policemen sitting in his break, uh, retire, in the waiting room, but not in uniform. No one in uniform ever appeared again. Yeah, I get it. Martha, you are a, uh, a, a, a thank you for the bit of history. You, you have you've, you've made us all smarter. Thank you very Back much. To- it's great to hear from you. Aretha in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Aretha, what's on your mind today? How are you doing today, Mr. Tom? Uh, I am well, great. I live in Lakeland, Florida, and 
I've been kind of disappointed because um, I moved from Delaware. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of disappointed in the governor here. Um, really, um, lately, the uh, critical race theory is literally driving me crazy with him. He had a briefing the other day, and I noticed he had a child on there that was a minor. And the first thing I said, well, let me go look at some of the curriculums and see what's being taught. Well, I don't see critical race theory in middle school. No. Nowhere. No, it's so it, my, it's not even in normal colleges. It's just in law schools. Okay. And that's see, Like, so I'm like, well, what are they pushing? So I just came to the realization they don't want to talk about slavery. They don't want to talk about history of Native Americans. They don't want, you know, it, they yeah. don't want to talk about. Holocaust. They don't want to talk about anything from the past. They want to just make it that that never happened. Yep. You know, we're going to start from 2021 or 20, and we're going to keep going or, you know, 2019 and keep going. And and I, I find that very um, annoying and it angers me because I feel okay. like with me having grandkids now, I want my grandkids to grow up and love everybody. I don't care if they're they're black, white, gay. I, that doesn't bother me. If they have a good heart and they're a good person, that's the most important part. Yeah. And for a lot of the televangelists that are pushing some of this, I find it odd because God loves all. So mm-hmm. really, how are you reading that Bible? Mm-hmm. And that, that just, you know... I'm trying to come to grips with it so how we can teach our our kids. You know, we got to look out for our future, and our kids is our future. And if we keep teaching, you know, hate, and I, I just got a bad feeling, this ain't going to come out good for America. And I hope and I pray that enough of us come together and say enough of the race. Uh, I'm, with you, enough. I'm with you. And I, I, I am hopeful that this is a fever that will break. Uh, probably with the next election. I think that some of the Trump crazies are probably going to lose elections quite badly in 2022. And that mm-hmm. might uh, take some of the steam out of it. But, you know, right now, this is the direction they're going. Aretha, thank you very much for a thoughtful call. I appreciate it. Curtis in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Curtis, it says you disagree with me. So you go to the front of the line. What, what do you disagree with well, me about? Well, you're, you're lying about the Republicans talking about race. It's a Democratic Party that constantly calls anybody that they disagree with a racist. It was a Democratic Party that formed the KKK. George Wallace, uh, Bill Connor, those are people. Yeah, you're right. They were Democrats. Those were racist. Sure. And they were Democrats. Yeah, you're right. The Democratic Party was the home to the Dixiecrats before 1960. Curtis. You were lying about it. So I am not lying about it, Curtis. And the simple fact of the matter is that the Democratic Party is not proposing laws saying you may not teach black history. The Republican Party not, is not only proposing these laws, they've passed them in a half a dozen states. That's, that's not true. It is. But, it absolutely is. But you're saying that, wait, wait, critical race, race theory is not being taught, right? The critical race theory is not being taught anywhere except in law schools, but black history is, and that's what Republicans are outlawing. So what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that Republicans are outlawing. Uh, Curtis, this is, this is a pathetic conversation. I'm going to move along. Thank you very much. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Great show. Thank you. Well, that list of what President Biden has done in a, one year, I was thinking, wow, in four years, what did Trump do? He did it an eight, by, eight and a half by 11 page in block print. It would say tax break for the billionaires. Yeah. And Biden's accomplishments, you could run in a 
a stack of paper and unroll it and have this immense list of things that he's done in one oh, the, year. The one I had printed out in 10-point type was seven pages long. So, you know, if that was on a scroll, <laughs> no. it, it would have been seven times 11. You know, it would be, be just a little short of seven feet long. Right. That's what I think President uh, Biden should do on his speeches is unroll that thing and show you, here's me. Maybe you know, the Democratic Party should uh, make them like, you know, the old constitutions that you get rolled up in a tube, you know, in the gift shops in yeah, D.C. Absolutely. and things, you know, and, and just, yeah. you know, sell these scrolls or distribute them all over the country. I love it. Bruce, thank you very much for that. I appreciate the call. It's Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. So um, I'm a black male, 52 years old. I've always been an optimistic person, always believe that, as time goes on, the country progresses. I don't think I've ever seen a time in my life where black people are being attacked as much as we are right now, not just with the voting thing, but with this whole so-called critical race theory thing. Yeah, This whole thing is by design. They took something that nobody had ever heard of and re refused to define what it was so that they could just attach it to whatever they don't like call it critical race theory and ban it. Right. This I is mean, why Democrats need to... I'm, I'm, excuse me, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, this is, this is why we have bills to actually ban books. There's a bill, I believe, in Florida where, where basically they're saying, you know, you can't make white people feel uncomfortable. Exactly. And these are the same, these are the same folks that ran around for years saying, F your feelings and you, you guys are a bunch of snowflakes, stop being offended by everything. And now, all of a sudden, this, you know, we're so fragile, you need to protect our feelings. Yeah. You, we, we need to have our, our children's uh, faces and, and, and ears shielded from this horrible history that makes them feel bad. I mean, it's just, it drives me insane. Yeah. Nobody ever, I'm a black parent. Nobody ever considers what black parents want. You know, we're black, mm -hmm. we're parents also. We have kids in school also. Yeah, when was the last uh, time you saw we one of the TV networks stick a microphone in the face of a black parent and ask them what they think about this? It's always these right-wing white crackpots. Well, and when they say parents, they specify who they mean. They're not talking about all parents. They're talking about white, white parents. parents. Yep. yep. So it just drives me insane what's going on in this country right now. You know, what's going on in Florida, Texas. It's just like the GOP is just run. They're just they're just running wild with yeah. no, in-your-face racism. I, I I get it, Kevin. And you know the Republican Party is now more than ninety percent white. It has become basically a racial coalition or, or party, which is not something that you would want to have in a democracy, and uh, particularly a multiracial democracy. And uh, and they've declared war on black history, and that's what we need to start calling it: the war on the Republican war on black history. Kevin, thank you very much for the call. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Bellew and Gutierrez. It's titled A Field Guide to White Supremacy. This is from the uh, first chapter. Over the last few decades, two new ideas which focus on the origins, legacies, and persistence of white supremacy in the United States and other settler societies around the globe have reshaped the telling of American history. One is settler colonialism, which names and documents contact and colonization by a nation that wishes to populate the encountered land rather than, for example, extract, extraction colonialism 
in which the colonizers seek only to take wealth and resources back to their home country. The other is racial capitalism. The idea that capitalism and white supremacy had been intertwined since their inception. Settler colonial accounts of the United States study the nature of first contacts between indigenous people and European colonists. Through some of these, though some of these encounters began as peaceful conquests directed by missionaries, they were always supported by force of arms, were routinely violent, and ultimately had genocidal results. Following in the wake of the Colombian voyages through the Americas, colonial settlers from Spain, uh, England, and France imposed their dominance, systematically exploiting Native Americans, demanding their labor and their bodies, driving them off of ancestral planting and hunting grounds, then declaring those grounds vacant and the rightful property of the settlers. These lies were compounded when a European colonists insisted that the Indians were culturally inferior. They were said to war worship false gods and had doggedly resisted Christianization and domination, behaviors the settlers racialized as red. The natives were, quote, savages who required, quote, civilizing by their white colonial lords and ladies who claimed superiority of faith and genteel birth. Broken peace treaties and the loss of territorial sovereignty followed. Then came removal onto reservations and intentional exposure to diseases by agents of the U.S. government to quicken the vanishing of the so-called red race. For the children who survived this Holocaust, it meant separation from their parents and cultures for placement in Indian boarding schools where they were to forget their homelands, seek an aspirational equality always denied, never fully Americans, ever natives without rights. Settler colonialism featured two prominent mechanisms of genocide, one through direct violence, the other through forced assimilation. One does not have to look too far to witness the legacies of settler colonialism still present in indigenous poverty, segregation, lapses in medical care, and victimization by predators ever intent on exploiting their natural resources without compensation. American history relies on two racial dichotomies, white-black and white-non-white, to tell the story of African slavery and colonial territorial expansion. James Madison offered one of the many possible explanations for how these distinctions were born. In 1826, by then a former president of the United States, Madison wrote the U.S. Superintendent of Indian Affairs, Thomas L. McKinney, expressing a foreign policy concern. Quote, Next to the black race within our bosom, that of the red race on our borders is the problem most baffling to the policy of our country, end quote. African slavery was by then a long-established, rapidly growing, profitable institution. For Madison, slaves were properties of their white masters in the very, quote, bosom of the body politic and unproblematic, while Native Americans were outsiders and threats to the nation's boundaries. Two decades later, as the United States negotiated its spoils at the end of the Mexican War in 1848, John C. Calhoun rose before his Senate colleagues, objecting to the incorporation of any Mexicans because they were mostly Indians. Quote, ours is the government of the white man, of the Caucasian race, Calhoun vaunted. The United States had never considered integrating Indian tribes. He reminded his listeners that they had been driven into the forests by force. As these quotations illustrate, this section of the guide brings together authors who combine the insights of settler colonialism 
with those who chronicle the history of racial capitalism, two literatures long deemed distant and distinct. Settler colonialism interrogates anew how the United States managed its foreign policy with indigenous nations. Racial capitalism reveals the relationship between slavery and development of capitalism as more before the Civil War. It posits instead that slavery's cotton production in the South fueled the industrialization of, north, of the northern cotton mills, its exports monetizing capitalism's global reach, birthing America as the quintessential exemplar of capitalism. To the present, it has continued to exploit and marginalize racial others in order to maintain white supremacy. Racial capitalism illuminates the historical lineages of our collective past and present. The book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy by Catherine Bellew and Ramon Gutierrez. A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Marcus in Chicago. Hey, Marcus, what's up? If a black parent complained about a certain book that's written by a white author or complained about, say, Robert E. Lee being taught in history or felt that their children were uneasy because the founding fathers were slave owners, yet they're plastic throughout history, that black parents' issues wouldn't be taken into consideration. And on top of that, so that you, black parents' objection would not be amplified by right-wing billionaires. Exactly. Yeah. It is becoming so obvious that race is the subtext of almost everything the GOP is running on right now. And mm -hmm. we'll see how it plays out. Then, then you see some of the people that are, are in government running this country. Man, uh, God help us all. God yeah. help us all. I, I, I'm, have a good day, John. I'm with you, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, I do actually pray for my country from time to time. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.